This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. He is Dan Henderson. So he is a retired MMA fighter who previously fought in the UFC, Pride, and Strike Force. So he was actually the first fighter, guys, in MMA history to be a two-division champion of a major MMA promotion while he simultaneously held the Pride Middleweight Championship and Welterweight Championship belt. So middleweight at the time was 205 and welterweight was 183. And so he was also the last light heavyweight champion for Strike Force in their history. So this dude has wins over guys like Fedor Emelianenko. Vanderlei Silva, Shogun Hua, Vitor Belfort, Rich Franklin, Michael Bisbing, Big Nog, Henzo Gracie, Carlos Newton, and many, many others. And in addition to that, most people kind of forget the guy was a two-time Olympian, so he represented the United States as a member of the Greco-Roman wrestling team in 1992 in Barcelona and 1996 in Atlanta. So we talk about a whole bunch of stuff in this podcast, and one of the things we talk about is, uh, I guess, one of the highlights of his career, which would be his fight against Shogun Hua at UFC 139. That fight was actually inducted into the UFC's fight wing of their Hall of Fame. And so that's kind of his highlight. And in addition to that, he's got other things he's doing now in business. He's kind of looking to open up a brewery and restaurant and doing some things. He has a a gym where he trains fighters. And he he also just released this book here. It's called Hendo, The American Athlete. And so this book is really a breakdown of his career and his life. So it gets into his early life and his childhood. It gets into his wrestling career and everything that he went through, uh, trying to become an Olympian and then trying to win a gold medal. And then we get into his MMA career as well in the book. But in this interview today, we kind of follow the same cadence as the book. We talk about what it was like growing up with a very athletic and tough father and an athletic and more naturally athletic older brother, why he was drawn to wrestling, why Greco, when did he realize he had what it took to potentially be an Olympian? Okay, now he's an Olympian. You know, how does he get to becoming a gold medalist? And he didn't win the gold medal, so how does he deal with that? And then his trajectory changing and becoming an MMA fighter, right? But he's fighting MMA in the early days, in the 90s, where you're having to fight multiple times in one night. There's not always a lot of money. He was doing that while still trying to be an Olympian and make the Olympic squad and do all those different things. But he burns his ships at the age of 30, and we talk about that, and he goes full bore into MMA. And guys, we go through his, his, you know, times in his career, we had to fight three times in one night. We talk about what he did in pride. His first fight in pride was against Vanderlei Silva. And that was his first loss. We talk about how he got the nickname, the H bomb for his right hand. We talk about when he wins the, you know, 2005 welterweight grand prix becomes a world champion. We talk about when he gets his second belt. And then we break down all these fights that you guys would remember his fight against Michael Bisming, which is still to this day, my favorite knockout of all time is when he knocked out Michael Bisming at UFC 100 greatest KO probably in UFC history. But then we talk about when he fought Fedor and when he fought Shogun and they had, you know, one of the greatest fights of all time, the fight I mentioned that's been inducted in the Hall of Fame. We talked about the end of his career and fighting Michael Bisming again and retiring. And then we also talked about his faith because he mentions uh, a few times in the book, just very little things about his faith. And so I asked him a few questions about that and kind of put him on the spot. So that's towards the interview, end of the interview. So you guys should definitely stick around and check that part of it out. But then at the end, I asked him some kind of rapid fire lightning round questions about MMA. You know, if he could only leave one fight for humanity, which one of his fights would he leave? If he could get one fight back, what's the number one fight? You know, what was it like fighting against all those roided up fighters in pride, especially, and then also in UFC before USADA came in guys, we went everywhere 
everywhere in this conversation. I'm so so thrilled that he spent so much time with us and was so patient uh, with everything. We actually had to reschedule this once because you know some things got messed up that was outside of both of ours our controls. But he's he is a stand up dude. He's a very awesome guy to talk to, and I just again he's one of my favorite fighters of all time. So I feel thrilled that I got the chance to talk to him. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dan Henderson, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Now, I will tell you, I forgot one thing that I left downstairs, but you were the inspiration behind my jujitsu mouth guard because it's red, white, and blue, just like what you wore back in Pride. So I was going to toss that in, but it would have made people hard to hear me for the rest of the interview. So we don't got to do all that. But we're going to dive into uh, a lot of your story and talk about a lot of different things today. You really go in a lot of detail in your new book, Hindo, The American Athlete. It's a fantastic book. I just finished it last week. So we're, we're not really going to be digging into everything because you do such a good job detailing it in the book. But let's just go ahead and start in your early life. So let's talk about growing up, Dan Henderson. You know, you had kind of a rough and tough father who was a really good athlete uh, in really good shape. You had an older brother that was seen kind of as like the, you know, the natural stud athlete of the family. But let's just start with your childhood. We'll work from there. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. It, it, uh, you know, when I, I think when I first started wrestling, I didn't, you know, I just, my dad had brought me to a wrestling tournament. I, I don't think I had ever been to practice before. And, uh, I think the first time I went, I was just watching and watched my brother wrestle. And, and, uh, you know, I think he got beat pretty good by, by this other kid that was phenomenal. And, and, uh, I didn't know what to think of it. Then the next time I, I went, I was the one wrestling also. And, and, uh, you know, and I think it was after that, we started doing, you know, the, the practices and, and started learning moves, but I was five years old. So, I mean, it's all just fun at that point. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, just my dad kind of pushing, uh, pushing us into wrestling and, and, you know, we, we played other sports also, but, wrestling's kind of what I gravitated towards as I got older. Okay. So let, let's talk about that gravitation. Cause I just talked about recently how I played baseball and wrestled growing up, but way more baseball than wrestling, but baseball practice was boring. It was, uh, you know, you did, you took outfield, you know, you went and took your cuts, you had to put two bunts down and then you got your 10 cuts and you did some drills and all that. But, you know, we would complain if we had to run foul poles at the end of practice. Right. You know, but then you go to wrestling practice and you feel like you're going to die every single day you don't but you just feel like you're going to die it's this competition and they're pushing you at the end of class and you're burning out and all that stuff so a lot of kids especially now dan they're going to gravitate towards the easier sport now baseball is really really hard takes a lot of skill but you say that you kind of more so gravitated towards the wrestling side well why do you think that is uh i think a lot of it had to do with you know a coach a coach's opinion if one kid's better than the other kid in baseball you don't they don't really go head to head so right. so much and you know and and until you get to high school most of the time it, you know the, the coaches definitely and probably in high school also but they they definitely um you know kind of or or favor some of the kids that are maybe mm -hmm. their their friends kids or whatever else uh but you know i, I just didn't like that I, I knew that i was better than some kids but i just wasn't playing and in wrestling, I, I didn't have that problem. If I, if I beat the kid, then I made the team or, you know, or we both go to the tournament and I'm the one that wins type of thing. So 
I had, it's not like you're sitting on the bench in wrestling based on the fact that somebody's friends with your, you know, the coach. One with baseball, there's no way to settle who's better because you can't both bat at the same time and to hit against the same pitcher, same pitches and all that type of thing. But in the room, it's like, well, got two kids at this weight. So y'all are going to wrestle three times and first one to win two. Like you're, you're on the team, you got the spot. And so growing up in Oklahoma, you obviously are are familiar and you get a lot of that. Now there's a very interesting quote from your book that I think kind of leads into this discussion about everything, but it's this quote here. Let's just say if it wasn't for my dad and Bob, Dan Henderson wouldn't be who he is today. So the Bob that you're referring to in your book, and you talk a whole lot about him in the book, so we'll just be brief with him today. You're talking about Bob Anderson. So tell us about Bob and tell us about why the combo of Mr. Henderson and Bob Anderson kind of led to you going on the pathway that you did. Uh, You know, Bob was just one of those guys, kind of an old school coach that, you know, made you grind in practice, made you do a lot of extra work and, and, uh, you know, would sit down on, on, you know, before practice or in between practices on Sunday and, and, you know, give a little mini sermon, you know, right, right in the wrestling room for us. And then we, you know, go and eat lunch and go have another practice. When I was growing up, when I first met Bob, it was, uh, you know, we used to go to wrestling tournaments every weekend for the kids, you know, the kind of local wrestling tournaments and, you wrestle the same kids almost every week. And uh, Bob had an idea to, to invite all the best kids to a, to a training camp every weekend, fr- Friday to Sunday. Uh, and he had it at Camp Pendleton. Parents would drop their kids off on a Friday afternoon, pick them up Sunday night, you know, and I think it was like nine bucks. Oh, wow. included included meals and everything else. Cause we stayed, you know, in, in like the old, old school Quonson hut barracks and, and, uh, ran to chow hall and, and did all that. Um, you know, so it was kind of fun as a kid to do that, but I mean, we're working, we're, we're practicing three, four times a day. We had two practices on Friday night and probably four on Saturday, three on Sunday, every weekend we would do that. So, we'd wrestle with, with these, the best kids in the area nonstop and not just one or two matches, but you know, 10 practices in a, in a weekend. Hey guys, real quick. So just this morning I was at the doctor and on my way out the door, I kind of struck up a conversation with him because this doctor used to try to convince me all the time that I needed to stop eating red meat. He had been convinced that red meat was the devil and it was terrible for you. And then over time, as he was not having red meat in his diet, he was kind of suffering from that. And so he is all in now. And so he's trying to go carnivore like I am, but he and I were both kind of lamenting and worrying about the fact that, man, we don't know where to get high quality beef. We're surrounded by all these cattle operations here in Oklahoma. And there's also these online ones, but you don't really know which ones to trust. And so I've been looking for a partner in the cattle operation business and I found one and I'm very excited to tell you about them. That is why I want to introduce you to the official beef delivery partner of Undaunted Life my friends at Primal Beef. So Primal Beef is a new cattle operation owned and operated by Sean Glass. So he's a retired Navy SEAL that served with Jocko Willink and Jocko is also a partner in Primal Beef. So what makes Primal Beef different? 
from all the other fly-by-night beef delivery service companies here in America. It's a combo of the following. So they have all-American Black Angus cattle. The beef comes from one single farm, and that's in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. The beef is also all-natural. It has no hormones ever, no antibiotics ever, no mRNA ever. And after slaughter, the beef is dry-aged. Then it is hand-cut by artisan butchers and then flash-frozen to ensure that it maintains tenderness, marbling, and flavor. So whenever you open the package, you're not getting an old crappy piece of meat. It is so absolutely perfect. And here's another cool thing. For every box sold, Primal Beef donates meat directly to a member of America's Special Operations Forces through the C4 Foundation. So you can take pride in knowing that your purchase will help put literal food on the table for America's finest warriors. So... If you're not salivating at this point, you absolutely should be. Guys, go and try Primal Beef out today by going to www.primalbeef.com. That's primalbeef.com. Use the promo code KYLE to get 10% off of your order. Again, that's primalbeef.com. Promo code KYLE to get 10% off. When, I mean, you hear about that now, Dan, but when you were doing it, like the specialization stuff was kind of rare because now you have parents that are like, okay, my kid's six. So we have to pick his sport. Okay. You're going to be a golfer. You're going to be a baseball player. You're going to be a basketball player. And then you basically force them to do that only thing. That's what I liked, you know, reading in your story or reading in your memoir about, okay, you were playing all these other sports. And it's interesting because I try to explain to people the nat- how some people have a natural ability to strike. Obviously, they have to learn how to strike, but they have a natural ability, and it typically comes from your ability to throw. And so you talk about playing third base and being able to throw, and I played outfield and had a pretty good arm. And so then you have these guys that only wrestle their entire life, and they have no transferable athletic skills because they didn't play anything else. And so they can't shoot a basketball, they can't hit a baseball and all that, but you, you kind of had that well-roundedness. But for you, um, it was a very interesting thing because you weren't just good at wrestling. You were elite at wrestling. And and we're talking about not just the country, but the world. And so at some point, I don't know whether it was you that realized it or whether it was your dad or Bob or some combination of the three or other people. It's like you potentially have what it takes to be an Olympian someday. And so take me take me down the road. And again, you you talk about it a lot in the book, so we're not going to get into all the detail. You got to pick up the new book, Hendo. But. Take us through the, the the pathway. Like, when do you figure out, like, oh, I could actually maybe do this wrestling thing and then start working your way towards doing that? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, like I said, every weekend we were down there, you know, unless we were going to a big wrestling tournament. And I think uh, in 1984, um, and, and my dad had coached wrestling teams over, you know, kind of like exchange programs where they go to Europe and, they take a bunch of high school age kids and and get to wrestle over there and kind of get to see a different part of the world at the same time. And so he kind of had some friends, uh, the other coaches from Sweden and and Amsterdam. And when the 84 Olympics were in LA, which was, you know, an hour and a half from where I lived, uh, uh, a bunch of those people came to watch some of the, watch the Olympics and watch the wrestling at the Olympics. So I got to go and, and, you know, it was a pretty neat experience to, to watch that happen. And I think that's when the bug got in me and, and, you know, I, I was 14 years old at that point and, and, uh, the very next Olympic trials, I, I, I tried to make the team and, and got my ass beat pretty bad. Uh, in the, I made it to the kind of the final Olympic trials, but got, got smoked pretty bad 
I think I got checked twice and was done. So within that, that after that Olympic trials in 1988, I, uh, which is the year I graduated high school, I, you know, went to college and wrestled at Cal State Fullerton, but at the same time I was started going over to Russia to train and then had an opportunity to drop out after two years of college, drop out and, and, you know, try to make the 92 Olympic team um, and and go and wrestle in Europe most of the time and a lot of trips to Russia. So that's pretty much uh, we had, you know, my coach Bob had gotten a, a sponsor and we, we went over, I dropped out of school and went over and wrestled in Europe for probably six months out of the year. I was gone wrestling and made the Olympic team <laughs> the very next Olympics. Well, and that, that's one of my favorite parts of the book is where you detail what you had to go through in the different tournaments and what you had to go through in the trials and then also detailing how you performed at the games because you're a two-time Olympian and you you break down each match. It's not, you know, like a volume of how you break down the match, but you do kind of break down each match and kind of where you were at mentally. But obviously you had the goal of standing at the top of the podium and hearing the national anthem with the gold medal around your neck and that just never happened for you. But, I mean, being an Olympic uh, wrestler for the United States wrestling team uh, with Greco-Roman and representing the United States, was it was a huge deal uh, regardless. But how do you, I don't know, how do I guess do you balance that, you know, life's goal of wanting to win the gold medal and not attaining it, but also being one of the very, very few people to ever do what you've done and to make two Olympic teams back-to-back? Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I, I still had that goal after after I didn't, get a medal at the first Olympics. I had that goal and, uh, continued to wrestle. And, and, you know, I think I had gotten a, like a reconstructive shoulder surgery, you know, a year after those Olympics in Barcelona. And I had gone back to ASU. I got, while I was at the Olympics, a new wrestling coach at ASU, um, Leroy Smith, Oklahoma boy. Yeah. Uh, recruited me to go to ASU my last year of eligibility. So I went there and, and, you know, I wasn't overly fond of that, of collegiate wrestling. The style just was a little too slow and yeah, I don't know. It just wasn't my thing. They didn't, I like to score points and, and, you know, college wrestling wasn't that way. So yeah, I just, uh, kept on going and, and still had that goal to win a medal, made the next Olympic teams and still didn't achieve my goal. So I tried, tried for a third team, but didn't make the team. But the interesting thing about how you described it in the book as well is most people don't have the foggiest idea how Olympians are paid, how they take care of their training, how they take care of their coaches, how they travel, what it's like in the Olympic village. And so again, guys, you know, plugging Hindo, the book, you have to make sure you go and check that out because you, you give some behind the scenes uh, ideas of stuff that was just shocking to read because, you know, you see the commercials and you see, you know, see the stuff on television. Then it's like, okay, it's not always that way for every Olympic athlete, but <clears throat> you're still on this pathway to trying to develop yourself to where you can attain your goal, being an Olympic champion. And along the way, the trajectory of your life kind of took a turn and it really got adjusted in May of 1997. We get a call from your good buddy and fellow MMA legend, Randy Couture. And he says, Hey Dan, I got a call from this fight promoter. 
down in Brazil, they're looking for another fighter at 175. So take us through that phone call because obviously you and Randy are good buddies. You've trained a lot in wrestling. Like you, you trust each other implicitly, but he just gives you this random call. Hey, let's fly to another country. They need another fighter. What, what was that like? Uh, well, I mean, it, w- it was a little bit out of the blue because mm. I mean, we had watched uh, a number of the, the UFCs up before, up to that point and, and uh, thought that it would, might be fun to try, but might be good at it. Not sure. Not sure about going against those big 300 pounders. Randy was a little bit bigger than me, mm. um, you know, like 15, 20 pounds, one way class up. So, uh, you know, I guess it wasn't as bad for him, but I didn't realize he had put an application in to fight in the UFC and, and uh, you know, he got denied, I guess, but. And then he decided he was going to do this tournament down in Brazil at heavy, like a heavyweight tournament. And, uh, I believe Randleman was in that tournament as well. And, and mm-hmm. asked me if I wanted to do the lighter weight tournament. I said, sure. Why not? You know? And two weeks later I was down in Brazil fighting. And so you're in Brazil, you're fighting a guy named Crezio de Souza or de Souza. And it's June 15th in 1997. And the thing is, is what, what people don't understand about wrestlers as well is you're competing constantly. Competition is not like a foreign concept to you. Like, yeah, you get nervous, but you're competing so often in the room and at tournaments where it's like, if you get nervous all the time, like you'll just spontaneously combust at some point, you're not going to make it. But I was interested to see in your book, when you're talking about warming up for your very first MMA fight, how you weren't really nervous, but then as you were getting closer to the cage and as you got in there, it's like, Oh crap, like, what am I doing here? So just take us through your mindset of that first fight, because it's like, it's, it's fighting, you know, wrestling is kind of like that, but it was just, it just felt different to you at least. Right. No, for sure. And, and, you know, when I got down to Brazil, I was hearing stories about, you know, they have a big, they had, I don't know if they, it's still a big rivalry, but you know, but the, the, like the, the striking guys against the grappling guys always had mm-hmm. kind of rivalry and, and, you know, in one of their MMA fights they had down there, somebody, one of them got stabbed through the cage by somebody outside of the cage. And yeah. I'm hearing stories and saying, Holy shit, you know, which I've never done this before. And it's a little bit, it was a little bit unsettling, but you know, it's like going to watch jaws and then going, going out in the ocean, you know? Right. It's a little nervous, but more than likely (laughs) the shark's not going to be there, but yeah. So yeah, I I went out there and as I'm getting into the cage and they're shutting the door, I'm like, what the fuck did I get myself into? Yeah. I mean, and I was, uh, you know, the referee said, you ready you're ready and go and it all went away real quick you know it was just instinctual after that hey guys real quick the financial status of most american families is not great doesn't that make you sad it should make you sad and this is going to blow your mind according to a recent gallup poll 88 percent of non-retired americans are very worried about having enough money to retire and in that same poll only 19 percent of non-retired americans even think that they will have enough money to retire comfortably. That's 19%, not very much. So the thing is though, the reality is much worse than that. So I've seen estimates that claim that roughly 95% 
of non-retired Americans are currently not on track to be able to retire. 95%. And that is only concerning savings and investments. That doesn't even account for people that are exposed to serious financial problems if they were to get too sick or too hurt to work. And God forbid if they pass away without having a plan to keep their family financially whole. It's just, it's a crazy mess. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friend and my financial advisor, Mike McCall with Blue Crest Financial. Mike can help you reach your chosen financial goals by helping you develop an overall plan to ensure you and your family's financial success. So whether it's IRAs, stocks, rollovers, life insurance, long-term care, disability income, you name it, Mike can help you with it. Now, just imagine the peace of mind that comes with knowing that you're taking proactive steps towards financial security for you and your loved ones. Think about the legacy you can leave behind, and it's really going to be something that truly reflects your conservative values and the hard work you put in throughout your life. I trust Mike McCall with my financial planning, so I think you should give him a shot as well. So to receive your free personal and or business financial assessment, go to the link in the show notes in this episode to book a 15-minute Zoom call with Mike. Do not try to piecemeal your own financial plan. Let an expert help you. Again, go to the link in the bio. Just click that link in the bio to get your free assessment. Well, it's interesting you use the word instinctual. I can't remember if you use that word in your book, but it's like, it's obvious that that's how it went because you fought two times that day and you won the first fight, uh, TKO and the second fight by a guillotine, which kind of leads me to the next thing. When, when people just get into MMA in the last few years, like maybe they like Brock Lesnar or Ronda Rousey or Conor McGregor. And so they just get into the sport. They don't really realize what it was like in the nineties and early two thousands. And I, I guess the best way to talk about that would be going to when you fought for rings over in Japan. So this is King of Kings in 1999. Um, and so this is 99, 2000. I can't remember what, but it was a 32 man open weight class tournament. And so in order to, to win it all, you had to fight and win three times in a single night. And, and again, you have guys that will go through, a, you know, they'll fight twice a year now. And you're fighting, you know, three times in a night. You got a bad knee injury in the second fight against Big Nog, a fight that you won. Uh, you know, you only had like 20 minutes of rest between your semifinal and the final against Babalu. And it's just like, no, just take us through the old school mindset. Cause I talked to Nate Marquardt about the same thing. And people just don't quite get how insane it was for y'all to perform at such a high level, realizing that if you get into a dog fight in your first fight, like the odds of you making it to the end of the night just like basically went out the window. So it's just take us through the early days, man. Well, yeah, I mean that, and it was actually five fights, but two of them were at the first event and that was at the end of 99. Mm. And so they did two, two of the, the half the bracket went and fought twice in a the night. Then they did the other half of the bracket twice in a night. And then all eight guys that made it to the finals fought, and I fought three times in a night. And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, it was it was uh, it was definitely tough. They they did kind of change the rules a little bit for, for for the tournament. Basically, it was two five minute, kind of like they do the Ultimate Fighter two fives, and if it's a draw, mm-hmm. they'll go a third. Um, you know, and 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 I did go the distance with everybody in the tournament with, with the exception of my first fight. And he was, he was a, a Greco heavyweight or a 220 pound heavyweight or wrestler that I think meddled in the worlds. And, uh, yeah, he was the biggest pussy I fought out of all of them. <laughs> I don't know how his 
shocked. I think I need him in the ribs and he, you know, kind of went down and tapped out fairly early, but yeah. And it was, uh, and I, I don't know if I said this in my book, but I had never even sparred before. And that, that when I did that tournament, that was the first time I sparred in practice mm-hmm. or that, um, you know, I had already fought in that tournament in Brazil already fought in the UFC at that point and then did this, uh, this tournament and decided I should maybe try sparring in practice. So that actually, that helped quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. But being a wrestler and used to ha- wrestling five times in a weekend, you know, and not much break sometimes is, is the reason why it was a lot easier for me to do those tournaments, you know, at, as my career and as I got older, you know, there's no way I wanted to do tournaments just because, you know, the competition's a little bit st- steeper and guys are better and, and, and I was getting older. So those, uh, recovery was, was huge in those tournaments. And, and yeah, I, I tore my knee up in the, the second fight that night and had to reach deep to, to go out there 20 minutes later to fight Babalu. Yeah, it was just an insane, just looking at the names that you took on even early in your career, it's just crazy. But at the time, people also don't understand this, like there weren't MMA gyms back then. So it's not a complete shock that you never hit pads or sparred or did a whole lot before you got in there to fight because no one really knew what to do. In order to be an MMA fighter, you had to go train at a boxing gym and then drive across town to a wrestling gym and then go to a jiu-jitsu school and take a private lesson and something like that. But you and Randy... We're actually, I don't know if y'all were the first, you're you're one of the first to kind of create your own team. And so that was Team Quest. So the legendary Team Quest, you know, there's a lot of names out there. Chel Sonnen's another guy uh, that was there with you guys. So what was that like trying to start a gym where it's like, okay, we're not just going to be the gym that does this one discipline really well, but we're going to try to do it all so we can train for these fights. Well, I mean, the sport kind of dictated that. I mean, it, it wasn't just one aspect of of fighting it was everything every martial art kind of combined uh so we we had guys that did a lot of grappling did a lot of striking and we kind of it would bring them in and and practice all together and we'd all be learning you know the same things but randy and i would were really good at at using our wrestling and figuring out how to make it our wrestling work for everything else so and, and yeah, it would have been a lot easier had the sport been around and there was coaches that actually went through this and already knew how to, what was good for wrestling, what wasn't and in MMA. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a process, but it was real fun to learn after the, after years of wrestling Greco and Greco, it's even more limited than hmm. freestyle. You don't, you don't have leg attacks. You can't grab legs and it's mostly upper body and, it it got pretty redundant in practice every day. So as soon as I started MMA practice or training, it, it was so fun to learn all this new stuff and submissions. And, you know, we weren't allowed to do that stuff in wrestling. And I think, I think that's what slowly developed in me was the love of the sport because of how fun and exciting it was. And so at some point you make the decision, I think you were 30, where you're like, okay, 
I'm going to do this MMA thing full time. You're not going to pursue the Olympic dream anymore. You're not going to go back to school. I think you're talking about going to chiropractic school or something like that. You know, start your own business, that type of thing. You burn the ships. And in the year 2000, you sign with pride. And so I have this habit of when I'm on the back porch smoking a cigar and having a whiskey, I'll just turn on old pride fights because it's just like, you know, it kind of takes me back to those early days and that, that 10 minute first round or whatever. But at the time that you signed, it was the biggest MMA promotion in the world. Uh, you had previously fought in the UFC at UFC 17, uh, but the UFC was kind of struggling at the time. You know, no one really knew that it would survive, much less become this, you know, global hegemon that it is now. But you're undefeated. You're nine and zero. You already beat, you know, Big Nog, Carlos Newton, and some other guys. And they ask you to fight some dude named Vanderlei Silva. And you see him, uh, you know, in the the pre-fight uh, stuff, and you're, he's tatted up, and he's obviously juiced to the gills, and like he looks like a fighter. He looks like a dude that'll kill you in a, in a parking lot. And you go through this fight, you lead up to this fight, and you actually lose the decision. And this is the first loss of your MMA career. So take me through that, you know, signing, you know, going to fight in Japan again, fighting against this guy that everybody's terrified of, but then you do go in there and you just don't get your hand raised. Uh, yeah, actually, when they first contacted me, they wanted me to fight Vitor. Right, uh, right. And he got hurt or pulled out, and it wasn't like I was had that long of a notice. I think I, I knew about three weeks before that I was going to fight there, and, uh, you know, and then... I think uh, I was in a, at a wrestling tournament in France and, and got word that it, my opponent changed to Vanderlei and, and uh, you know, said, okay, I didn't really know anything about him, but whatever, it's fine. You know, they, they were paying me, so I was going to go make some money and, and hopefully beat somebody up. And, and uh, I got home and I ended up having strep throat at the end of that. And I really didn't have – and I had like 10 days at home and, and, uh, you know, I was pretty, pretty much wiped out for at least a week of that 10 days. So I, it really set my conditioning back a little bit. And, you know, in that fight, there was a lot of action when I fought Vanderlei. And what, yeah, when I showed up at the hotel, I saw him walk by tattoos on the back of his head and, you know, I'm like, what the fuck? That, that's who I'm fighting. So <laughs> I was like, all right, but you know, I don't, I don't get intimidated easy. So I've, I've been there and done that with scary looking guys and they're not so scary once you, once you get a hold of them. So, but yeah, I, I, I came out and kind of smashed Vanderlei's eye pretty good. And, and, uh, I remember in that fight, he kind of, and, and the rules were kind of goofy for that event. They didn't allow knees to the head when you were face down on the ground. Hmm. But if the guy was face up, you could soccer kick him, stop him, whatever. I think their mentality was if he's face up, he could see it coming and, you know, move out of the way maybe. But if he's face down, he won't. But Vanderlei threw an illegal knee to my head when I was face down and they stopped it. And then they told me that if I didn't content, if I didn't continue, I'd lose the fight. Not that I was thinking about not continuing, but I was seeing a little bit blurry at that point, but I got up and finished the fight. But yeah, I, I was, uh, I think the last half of that fight, I spent a decent amount of time on my back with Vanderlei above me trying to soccer kick and head stop me hmm. while he's holding onto the ropes. 
Well, and that, that's the other thing that's kind of shocking to people when they watch some of these old fights, especially the soccer kicks, which I, I don't actually know why that's that's not super legal considering some of the other things that can be done, like, you know, flying knees and different things like that. But, you know, to, to each their own. But you after that fight, you go on a nice little run and you beat some guys. And as you, as you're beating guys, like you're you're bludgeoning them, you're you're knocking them out. And so this is when you actually get a nickname for one of your body parts and it's your right hand. And so you get the nickname, the H bomb. And so that's from uh, legendary pride commentator, Maro Nalo. And he basically called it the H bomb. And the thing is, is that nobody was really expecting it, right? Because you're the Greco Olympian, right? No one's expecting overhand rights. No one's expecting these uppercuts. No one's expecting you to have that. But the, the thing is, is when you connected Dan, people would just turn off. And I mean, you, you knocked out Henzo in the fight right after you lost to Vanderlei. And it was just, I mean, you have these brutal knockouts. So I guess for you, when did you realize you had that? Because you look at a guy right now, like a dominant wrestler, like a Colby Covington, he's never going to knock anybody out. He's going to have to punch you a hundred times and just overwhelm you with his pressure and his pace in order to get you out of there. Otherwise he's just going to have to fight you for 25 minutes. But for you, it's like, you can look for one shot, land it, and then the fight's over. So takes through that yeah i mean it was definitely a nice thing to to have you know and and but i i didn't realize you know how how hard i hit especially when i first started i told you we never sparred and then i would hit pads and they'd say oh you hit pretty hard but i mean you don't know what that means you know i hit pretty hard okay you know but until you start sparring and and you know kind of kind of reacting to, to punches coming at you with your own offense and, and, you know, kind of setting up certain shots and trying to figure out where to put those punches and where to put that power. That's when, that's when I slowly started putting it together with, with being able to land my, my power in the right spots. And, you know, it, before that, I didn't really, I was just throwing, I was throwing hard punches, but they just weren't going to the right places. And, and, you know, and th that fight against Henzo Gracie, you know, I, I I practiced with big gloves on while I had other guys with the little gloves on trying to take me down the whole time because I figured as soon as I hit him once or twice, he would just try to take me down the whole time. And, and that's basically what happened. And I was practicing catching guys on the way in, and, and it, it went exactly to how I planned it would go, which is rare. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's – I mean, you, you said it great. It's that, I mean, that's a great arrow to have in your quiver because a lot of guys don't have that. I mean, again, like a Max Holloway or some of these guys, they just have to really throw punches and bunches and land a whole bunch. But I want to fast forward to 2005 when you are in the Pride Welterweight Grand Prix. And so that's not 170 pounds. That was 183 pounds at the time. So you get a couple of KOs in September of that year, which gets you into the championship fight on New Year's Eve. So you're going to be fighting against Marilla Bustamante. And so, you know, again, you go into all this detail in the book, so it's going to seem like I'm just pa casually passing over this, but again, you got to pick up the book for all this detail. The fight does go the distance. You win via split decision, and at that exact moment, you're a world champion. And I want to read this quote from you from your book here. I heard the ring announcer scream, Dan Henderson, and it dawned on me that I had finally won the first championship belt in my career. I had reached one of my mixed martial arts goals. I could check world champion off of that list. So, Hendo, what was it like becoming a world champ for the first time? Well, it was uh it, it was a little definitely surreal and a little bit 
unbelievable, but you know, I was, you know, obviously happy to have that opportunity, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I was definitely happy about it for sure. And, and I, I don't, you know, I, I think it, it showed a little bit when I was there, but yeah, I was, I was pretty, uh, happy to say the least. It was, you know, you work so hard for something and, and, and dedicate a good part of your life to trying to be the best. And, and you finally get there. It's, it's definitely one of those, you know, take a big deep breath and, and relax for a moment, you know, uh, moments, you know? So yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I don't even know how to put it into words. It was just awesome. I mean, guy, I talk to guys that will win a, a gold medal at a local jujitsu tournament and they get a little taste of that. You know, they put in all this work and maybe it's their white belt tournament. They've been training for a year and a half and they get a little taste of that. And, you know, there's certain fights in a fighter's career that are just those seminal moments. And there was a very unique quote from your book where you say this, February 24th of 2007 was the date of my redemption. So what you're referring to is your rematch against Vanderlei Silva. So this is actually, you know, because you you kept not quite being able to get the rematch booked. You know, it didn't quite make sense all the way. But here we are. It's 2000 and, or 2007. And Pride has booked you, but this is a chance for you to win your second title, okay? So you're the welterweight champion, but then you could have been the middleweight champion, which at the time was 205 pounds now, which is light heavyweight. So I'm not going to ruin it for anybody because I've been kind of ruining it throughout the, this interview by telling people what happened before you get a chance to say what happened. So it's February 24th of 2007. You're fighting Vanderlei Silva for a chance at a second title. What the heck happened, Dan? Well... Honestly, when they first called me, uh, and this was when Pride was coming, came to America. They had shows in Vegas, and I fought, I fought Vitor the first time they came, and at light heavy, or they they called it middleweight, uh, and then they called me up for the next show. They wanted me to fight Vanderlei. I was like, okay, no problem. I would love to, um, you know, because I was waiting for my chance to fight him again and and you know I would always lose right right and he had had the title for about five years at that point mm. and uh i'd always kind of have a loss right before uh i'd have that title shot opportunity so i i said for sure i'll do the fight and then i had to call him back or text him or email him you know a couple of days later i was thinking about it because they they're known for doing fights with their champion that are non-title fights hmm. with guys that are in different weight classes or whatever. So I was like, well, is this for the title? Not that it mattered. I, Cause I said, yeah, no matter what. And and they're like, yeah, it's for the title. I was like, Oh, awesome. So, and then I go out there and, and had a pretty good fight and, and caught him and, and uh, knocked him out. And, um, won the second belt and and at the time i you know I, I knew it was a big deal but you know that i had two belts you know at the same time but you know it was one of those things where what's next what am i going to do next mm -hmm. and uh you know i didn't know that it was such a huge thing to to have that nobody's ever done and nobody did for a long time after that um 
you know, so to have those two belts was pretty awesome. And, and to, to knock Vanderlei out the way I did was, you know, definitely one of my top two fights as far as uh, the, a feeling of accomplishment for sure. It is probably, it probably is the top based on just getting that belt, but you know, the, the Fedor fight is, is the other one that that's close to that, but yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Fedor certainly here in a second, but it's a fantastic fight with you and Vanderlei. You, you guys should definitely go and check it out. It was wild at different points, but <clears throat> you didn't really have to wait long for the next step because the next step came the very next month in March of 2007, because after you defeated Vanderlei to get your second belt, uh, the UFC bought out pride. It was a shock to most, to most people. And here you are, you're back in the UFC. Your first couple of fights uh, were against Rampage and Anderson Silva, and you lost those. Then you fought uh, Paul Harris, and you beat him. And then you got a call from UFC President Dana White to see if you would be interested in this little TV show they had at the time called The Ultimate Fighter opposite Michael Bisbing. So essentially what it would be, it would be the United States versus the UK with Bisbing coaching Team UK, and it would either be you or Rich Franklin coaching Team USA. And so... Whoever won the fight between you and Rich would end up being the coach. You end up beating Rich Franklin on January 17th of 2009, so you earned the spot to be the coach. So you and Bisming were the coaches for your teams during the season, and then you know if you know about the Ultimate Fighter, basically the coaches will fight each other at some time after the season is over. So you ended up fighting Michael Bisming at UFC 100, still one of the biggest uh, pay-per-view of and one of the most watched fight cards of all time. That was in July of 2009, and we'll get to the fight. Don't worry, because it's one of my favorite moments in the history of anything ever, okay? So we'll certainly get to the fight. But I want to talk about the buildup to the fight, because a lot of people don't realize how different people are when the microphones are on versus how they are behind the scenes. But it seems like Michael Bisbing is just as douchebaggy uh, in person and when the cameras are on and as when the cameras are off. So just take us through this experience of you being around Michael Bisming all the time, watching how he handles his fighters and how he handles himself and his business, watching how you handle yours. And then, you know, we'll make our way to UFC 100 after that. Well, I didn't really know him very well before that. I think I had, I, when I fought Rampage in England, Michael Bisming was on the card against uh, uh, Matt, Matt uh, Hamill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Hamill took him down and controlled him almost the whole fight. And, and I thought beat him up quite a bit. And Michael Bisping won the fight by decision. And in the press conference, this is the, and this is the first time I've ever met and seen and been around him. You know, the, the British media is asking him if, if he thought that he won the fight, you know, and he, threatened two different media guys to go take him out in the parking lot and beat him up, cussed at him. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? I mean, that's not how you represent the sport. It's, I mean, that's... <laughs> so, yeah, threatening to fight a non-fighter? Like, what's that yeah, about? Because they didn't agree with the judge's decision, which very few people did. Uh, but anyway, that was my first experience with him, and then... I'm now I'm coaching the ultimate fighter against him. And, and, uh, you know, he, he, and that's, I guess, one thing that you got to respect about the guy. It's not like he's, he's got a fake persona on camera and off camera. He He's the same guy, no matter what. And, you know, he, he just, uh, yeah, 
douchebag is, is the word I think I used on the show for him. But mm. yeah, he, uh, yeah, I think since then he's kind of grown up a little bit, but it, it, I don't, yeah, he, uh, he likes to talk. He certainly likes to talk and he thinks of himself as a savant in that area, even though whenever he's commentating, I have this tendency to put my, uh, my television on mute, but let's go ahead and get to UFC 100 in July of 2009. There's a lot of anticipation for the fight card, right? Cause GSP's on it. Brock Lesnar's on it. It's, you know, UFC 100, right? <clears throat> You're the third fight of the main event or a third fight of the main card rather. And there's so much anticipation because I remember watching every single episode of that season of The Ultimate Fighter. And I'm just like, I remember like when you kind of switch practice up, uh, you wanted to do a different practice time and he he throws a little hissy fit. Oh, you can't do that, Dan. And, you know, just all this stuff. And like, it was just like, oh, my God, I, I so badly want Dan Henderson to separate Michael Bisbing from his consciousness. I really, really super duper hope it happens. Like I was looking forward to the other fights because at the time GSP was probably my favorite fighter, but I was really, really looking forward to that. So, well, let's just talk about the fight a little bit. You get into round one, you can see kind of how his movement's going. You get close on a few things. You're smiling at him. I think he shot a takedown at the end of round one, which was hilarious uh, considering the two different backgrounds on your wrestling. But then we go into round two, and there's a quote from the book that I want to read here. He made the fatal mistake of moving to his left and right into maybe the cleanest, hardest overhand right in MMA history. And it's so funny because I rewatched the fight just a, a week ago, Dan. <clears throat> At the very beginning of the fight, uh, you know, Joe Rogan is saying things like, oh, yeah, I don't really know how Dan Henderson's going to be able to handle the, the pressure and the pace and blah, blah, blah. And then I think Goldberg was like, Joe, uh, Bisping keeps circling to his left. He's circling into to the H-bomb. And Joe's like, yeah, he's going to have to be careful. And then in round two, like the perfect connection of perfect connections happened. You throw a little inside leg kick and then you just throw the entire planet's worth of energy into one motion and connect it with Dan, with uh, with Bisbing's face. And then you followed it with a Superman punch, technically, uh, which ended up being your, your logo for one of your businesses. And it's still my favorite moment in all the moments of 30 years of MMA and different things like that. It's my single favorite moment because of how much I wanted it to happen. And so how did it feel to you? Cause I didn't think you were going to say Fedor earlier. I, was, I thought you were going to say the Bisbing one was the most satisfying because of, you know, all the talk and all the everything else, but let's talk about Bisbing and that knockout. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, I enjoyed it more than anybody cause I got to do it, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, he, uh, you're not alone in how you feel because almost almost every day, no matter where I'm at, someone comes up to me and says, thank you for knocking out Bisbing. <laughs> that was my favorite or, or, you know, almost every single day, no matter where I'm at, someone says that. And, uh, you know, so you're definitely not alone in, in mm. your thoughts on that one. But, you know, I said that Fedor was a close second. It, it was more about, accomplishing something big. I mean, I had already, I knew I was going to go in there and destroy Bisbang and, and I didn't think he was going to be able to handle me and my style and my, my power, uh, you know, so I knew that he had good cardio and that's about the only thing that he had was good at. So for me, knocking out a guy like Fedor or Vanderlei was, 
a much bigger accomplishment at the time. You know, Bisping hadn't become champ yet. He hadn't, you know, he had a pretty good record, but he hadn't really gotten up higher in the ranks and, and defeated some good guys yet. And it, it was just such a, a great fight because of the buildup, because of that, how the, the way that it ended. And at the time, it's like, oh, my gosh, your rocket in the UFC is going to shoot to the moon. But then you kind of take a hard left turn because after that fight, you actually let the UFC to go to Strike Force, which was another uh, MMA promotion headed up by Scott Coker at the time. And he's the same promoter of Bellator, which actually just recently got acquired by PFL. And on your third fight in Strike Force, you actually won another uh, world championship. You won the light heavyweight championship when you knocked out Cavalcante. And then your next fight after that was against one of the most feared uh, and legendary MMA fighters of all time, which you've already mentioned, Fedor Emelianenko. And it's a shock that y'all never fought in pride considering like all the different guys you fought like in common and different things like that. So I know different weight classes and all that, it would have been kind of crazy, but you know, the Japanese always love, you know, putting these mushing, these different matchups together that, you know, the crowd will find interesting. And there's all this fear surrounding him. And, and he's, he's literally just a legend. He's one of those guys that if you just looked at him with a shirt off, you wouldn't be terrified of him, but then you watch him fight and it's like, Oh my gosh, that's a gorilla in there. But Talk to me about how you were feeling going into that fight against him because at this point, neither one of y'all had ever been finished. Everyone's like, oh, this is going to be a, a five-round, you know, rock'em, sock'em robots, and we'll see how it goes at the end, and then I'll let you tell everybody how it ended. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know going into that fight, my my wife and, and every one of my friends and corners, you know, were a lot more nervous than they normally <laughs> And me, I was just me, I was the same. I wasn't nervous about it. I kind of knew that, you know, I had to do certain things. I didn't want to just go out there and, and play rock and shock and robot with him. I just, hmm. you know, wanted to kind of control him in the clinch and beat him up a little bit. And, and, you know, that kind of went out the window a little bit when, when he just, he came out just trying to knock my head off from, from right away. I think I stopped his assault when I was trying to touch gloves with him, he stopped and touched gloves and then he tried to knock my head off. But he, uh, yeah, he, he was going after me. And I, I think I landed a left hook right towards that first flurry and hit and backed him up, you know? And, and I, I remember in that, in that moment, in the fight just kind of pressuring him after that. And, you know, I think that's when he figured out that the little guy can hit hard too, you know? So, he uh he's definitely and and in my mind he was i respected him quite a bit as a fighter and and uh and what he had accomplished and how he carried himself and never talked shit just went out and got the job done and usually got it done pretty quickly um so yeah it was definitely like i said one of the top couple feeling of accomplishments that that i've had in my career sure well we'll take us through the finish dan because it, it was interesting because you got hurt and it, it all happened so quick um i, I just rewatched it here again recently because i remember it being quick but i, I don't remember it being that quick so you get hurt you're down he, he follows up it, it looks like he's about to end the fight <clears throat> and you do what i can only describe so with people that have trained jujitsu if you've trained jujitsu for two weeks you you basically used that little sweep that you did like you, you basically just went, went under his arm. You kind of kicked his butt to move his weight up a little bit. And 
almost inexplicably, he kind of goes uh, almost on all fours. He kind of posts his hands out really, really wide. And then you hit him with that shot. So, so tell me what you saw in that moment. Because, well, did you see anything? Like, were you on Queer Street? Because he hit you hard and he followed up. You know what I mean? You know, he he was coming at me pretty hard when we were standing, and I was kind of bent over and backing up at the same time. And and I think because I was a little bit bent over, his punch kind of grazed me. I think it cut cut me open a little bit, but but it didn't knock me silly at all. It knocked me on my ass. And and then I, you know, I see him coming at me and I'm trying to trying to grab a single leg, trying to do something, and, and he just gets on top trying to flurry. But I wasn't really hurt that bad at all. Mm. Uh it was more about him just bum rushing me and, and knocking me off balance. And I it, it set me on my ass, but I, you know, and I I like to get like a single leg in there and 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 or just an underhook and 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 kind of throw him by, you know, or pull the pull the single leg to where I'm pulling on his ass so it make his weight go on his hands, and he was kind of off balance trying to punch me so hard that he didn't have his weight set back to where he could have a good balance. So I just made him have to put his hands down on the mat as I popped out the side, and and you know I it's not like you practice that punch and practice very often at all, mm. um, you know, but I just threw a punch towards his face up under his armpit <laughs> from the back and, and uh, hit it, hit it in the right spot, I guess. Cause he, he face planted on the, on the mat. I mean, it was incredible. And, and again, to people that have continued watching Fedor's career, like he's been turned off several more times since then. But at the time people were talking about it, like, Whatever's harder than granite, that was what Fedor's chin was. It was like this guy's not capable of being finished, and then you finished him in such spectacular fashion, which was incredible. But after that fight with Fedor, strike force folds. Okay, so here you are. You find yourself back in the UFC, and so you just yeah, the UFC bottom. <laughs> yeah, and so here here he goes. Strike force is absorbed, just like Pride was, and so this is like I think your third stint in the UFC at that point. And so your first fight back in the UFC was against another pride legend in Shogun Hua. And that was at UFC 139 in 2011. You had actually previously beaten his brother, Ninja Hua, back at Pride 17 in 2001. So that was pretty interesting. I, I didn't realize that until I read your book. But this was going to be a five-round main event. And, Dan, I've been a part of some fight cards where it's like, okay, here's two legends that we're going to put in a fight. And then it just ends up being a dud it just sucks and it's just like you're so excited because you're thinking about all the highlights for both guys and you think oh it's going to be fireworks and then they go in there and maybe they're giving too much respect to one another and then it just ends up being an awful fight but what that fight ended up being is legitimately one of the single greatest fights in the history of mma so it was the fight of the year for 2011 but the fight actually was inducted into the fight wing of the ufc hall of fame i think it was back in uh 2018 and so talk to us about going into that fight. Obviously, it was another shocking thing that you two hadn't locked horns before, considering the different places that y'all had fought and the places where you were there at the same time. What were you anticipating going into that fight? And then just take us through this just five-round war that you both endured. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I don't know which one of those fights I was watching where, you know, previous to that, he had... uh 
I think he might have been injured coming off injury or something like that and and, and just didn't perform very well and he kind of quit halfway through the fight and and hmm. and just got finished and so and I'm seeing that and I'm like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna pressure him and beat on him a little bit and I'm gonna try to make him break and and make him quit and finish him and uh that was kind of my goal going into the fight. I knew that I had the capability of doing that, but you know, I, I knew obviously he's been around a long time and a tough guy. Um, you know, so I, I kind of heard him right at the beginning of the fight, cut him open, almost finished him and, and, and used a lot of energy that first round. Then I think in the third round, I knocked him down and tried to finish him again and just, used a lot of energy and and I don't know for me I threw a lot of punches in that fight for you know compared to what I normally do and that was you know the first time that they did five rounds for just a main event mm. uh, so I had to take into account that I, I had two extra rounds and needed to kind of be careful but yeah I tried to finish him so hard that into that third round that uh, you know, kind of shot my wad a little bit and, and was pretty tired after that. So he, uh, kind of, I basically, I, I let him get back in the fight. Just, you know, he, he toughed through it and, and kept on going and, and definitely a lot tougher and, and I gave him a lot more respect after that fight for sure. He, uh, he was tough. Yeah. And, obviously at that point in his career, he had fought so many times. You assumed that he was tough, but like to exactly what you said to see him kind of mentally check out of a fight previously to that. And then be so like his will to win that fight was so incredible. Now you did end up winning the decision. And again, it's gone down in history as, as simply one of the greatest and most rewatchable fights of all time. And I mean, you were exhausted at the end. It, it was crazy watching in the fifth round. I think he got Mount on you about 47 times, but it was just like one of those things, like at that point, there was no, there was no sweeping. There was no takedown there. There was no, like y'all were basically just surviving. And luckily for you, you ended up getting the decision. Right. And now after that, Dan, you, you go on kind of a who's who road of fighting, you know, the elite names of MMA. So you fought Machida and then Rashad, Vitor again, Shogun again, DC, Musasi, Tim Bosch, Vitor again, again, and then Hector Lombard. And it was at this time that after the Hector Lombard fight, because it wasn't going your way, that last fight for a long time. And then you hit him with the most inexplicable elbow strike of all time. Kind of like, it's like if you were to get mad at a wall and like hit it with an elbow or something like that, that's basically what you did to Hector Lombard's head. But you were thinking about calling it quits. You're well into your forties at this point. Um, and you're just thinking, nah, that was probably my last fight. But then you get a call from Dana, uncle Dana. And he asks you if you would be interested in having a second fight with your old rival, Michael Bisping. Now it was kind of a shocking call to you because I think you were ranked 12th or 13th. At, in the middleweight rankings at the time. And Michael Bisming had just won the championship by in, knocking out Luke Rockhold on short notice. And, you know, you had lost six of your last nine fights up to that point. And that was after the the win that you had against Shogun, the, the first fight. But this fight would be in Manchester, England, home turf for Bisming. It was going to be a title fight. And you knew it was going to be the last fight of your career. And so did Dana and the UFC. And so you were either going to go out on top with the UFC strap 
or that was just going to be your last last fight and you're going to ride off into the sunset. So talk to me about your mindset going into this fight because there's a lot going on. Like you're at the latter end of your career. You've already made the decision. This is your last fight. You have to freaking listen to Michael Bisbing talk again. And this fight's going to be in England. And as you've established earlier in this conversation and in your book, when you're fighting an English fighter in England and you let it go to the fight cards, it doesn't typically go your way. It's it's kind of a shocking thing that happens. But just take us through the buildup and take us through the fight. Uh, yeah, I, you know, at that point, I had already learned, and, and not just him, but a lot of other people, but mostly him, I learned how to just ignore almost everything they say leading up to the fight. I don't really care. What what matters to me is what happens once I get there and and, and we're in the cage together. So... You know, obviously, uh, he likes to to try to rile people up a little bit, but yeah, I just stayed me and and was I was pretty excited to get the opportunity. Obviously, uh, you know, I, I knew, and and you know, the whole world probably knew that I wasn't. It was going to be really hard for me to do better against him than I did the previous time. I mean. Yeah, that was basically like like a grand slam type type of fight the first time I fought him. So, you know, I I knew that obviously I was going to try to beat him again, and and it would have been a perfect exit out of MMA to to kind of have that that belt and be the be a world champ again, leaving the sport. So, yeah, I definitely. I was 46 years old and, and definitely had a little bit of, uh, you know, I was, I was feeling the age a little bit as far as recovery goes, I wasn't recovering as fast. So those five round fights were definitely a little bit tougher. So I, you know, I, I kind of came into that fight with the, with, you know, the, the game plan of, of beating them up, not and knocking them down, but you know, trying to conserve some energy as well. Cause I know that he's got one of the better cardios out there, you know, in MMA. So uh, that's basically what, what I did and kind of, kind of just stalked him down a little bit, the first couple rounds and knocked him down both first two rounds. And, you know, I felt like I was just beating him up. He was touching me here and there, but never, never threw anything that even, gave me a, a an idea that he hit hard at all. So, yeah, you know, it was pretty shocking to me at the, at the end of five rounds that that I didn't get the decision based on the fact that I beat him up and he looked like he got beat up. Hmm. So, I don't know. It left a bad taste in my mouth a little bit losing that decision. But, you know, I wasn't – I meant it when I was going to retire, win or lose – you know, so it didn't, it didn't really make me feel like I wanted to fight again. Winning wouldn't have made me want to fight again. You know, that would have been the way to go out. And I was, I was hoping for that. Well, I will say for me as, as a fan of yours at the time, and still like, I was very disappointed in the decision. It reminded me of like when, when Dillashaw fought, uh, Cruz, I thought that was a bad decision. Uh, John Jones has been on the good side of a bunch of bad decisions. Gustafson beat beat him in their first fight, and he, he didn't get the decision. Uh, 
another guy, Dominic Reyes, beat him in their in their fight and didn't get the decision. And so there's just some of those decisions that just stick with you to where it's just like it's almost like yeah, this person got robbed. And if that fight had taken place in Vegas or Sao Paulo or you know Tokyo, you probably leave with the UFC belt. But it was in Manchester, and so you didn't really get the nod. But you know that wraps up your career, and I really appreciate all your patience uh, with these questions, kind of going through all this because you do a great job detailing in the book. And again, it's another commercial for Hendo, the book, the the American Athlete. <clears throat> and so, one thing I wanted to kind of pull up as well because you mentioned it earlier in this conversation, and you also mentioned it just briefly a couple times in the book. So you talked about Bob Anderson. Um, you talked about his little mini sermons. There's a quote from your book. It's actually this on Sunday mornings, Bob, who is also a Christian, would give us 30 minute messages on the Bible and talk about Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And then in the last chapter of Hendo, you have a few sentences here that I'll read. I'm not really a religious guy. I don't go to church, but I still believe in God. I tend to not think about creation or give much thought to the meaning of life. I've always strived to be the best person I can be regardless of circumstances. And that isn't because God watching me, I've done it to better myself. And so as I was reading that, Dan, I was I was reminded of a scripture from James, which talks about how, you know, if you believe in God, well, well great. So do the demons. The, the demons believe in God and they shudder. And so for you, talk to me a little bit about your faith life, because right there, you just give us a little bit of a snippet. Ah, you're not a religious guy, but people that typically say that just don't like church because, you know, I get it. Church isn't really a place for tough guys with messed up ears. And so for you, when you think about your relationship to God or even your thoughts on Jesus of Nazareth, where do you land on all that? Uh, I mean, like I said, I don't I don't go to church. Hardly, uh, I've been to church a number of times, mm-hmm. but not in a, not in a while, but. You know, I just I'm always trying to be the best I, I can be, and and you know I I think I'm always a fair guy, and and just and I think if more people live like that, you know, and I know what you know, the religion is supposed to try to get people to to kind of have a reason to live like that, but I mean, I don't know, I I just live like that just because that's how I am, and and that, you know, I just want to be a good person. I don't, you know, I don't like, you know, I've I've been mean in the past (laughs) in certain circumstances, but, you know, I just, I'm just pretty easygoing and and love everybody give everybody the benefit of the doubt and and have patience with everybody. And, and, you know, a lot of my friends and my wife, everybody, you know, tells me I got way too much patience and I'm too nice to certain people, to a lot of people that, I mean, I don't know. And again, growing up hearing a lot of these Bob talk a lot and, and, Mm. you know, it definitely has stuck with me and, and, you know, but, but again, I, I I don't read the Bible. I don't, I don't go to church, you know, but I I am, I do believe in God and I, I, you know, I, I try to be a good person, but, you know, I, I don't think it's, because of him, but um, mm-hmm. you never know. But I, I just, uh, it's important to me to always be fair. And, and, you know, I think I'm known for that as well. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, you don't spend a lot of time in scripture reading the Bible, but you're kind of aware of these stories, mainly from what Bob would, would give you. If you do read, read the Bible and the story of scripture is that none of us can ever be good enough before a holy and righteous God that like even the best person, you know, was born into sin when they were born in this world. And so 
belief in God is an essential piece to a Christian walk, but it's what do you do with Jesus? Was this a real person? Did he really die on a cross, a Roman cross, you know, 2000 years ago? Did he really rise from the dead? And did that provide payment for all of our sin debt so that we could be before God? For you, is that something that you would even be curious about digging into more because I in listen, I don't want to talk about church. I don't want to talk about any of that because that gets into denominations and preferences and music and all that. I don't even care about that. I care just specifically about do you have faith that Jesus did that? Because if you don't, then you don't live a good life and you know, maybe you'll be right in the end. But specifically on the the question, I guess, of the resurrection, is that something that you've ever really wanted to reckon with to be like, okay, I want to get to I want to get to pay dirt on this. I want to get to the foundation and figure out if I actually believe this or not. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that is probably still in my head that I'm, you know, I'm not, not undecided still, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, I'd like to believe it, you know, but, you know, there's been a lot of other things in history that, that have been written down that probably didn't happen, you know, mm-hmm. but typically there's always some sort of truth to start somebody to talk about it even way back then. So, yeah, I mean, I'd like, to, I kind of lean towards believing it, but yeah, I mean, it, it's not something I think about that often actually, but. Gotcha. Well, this is right in front of me like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably do believe a lot more than I don't believe if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I did kind of throw that right in your face, didn't I? Well, that, that was kind of the, the point, I guess. But that that would be my my encouragement for you. Is there a lot of people, Dan, that don't think about it at all and they never want to think about it because that's just how they're wired. They hate God, even though they don't think he exists and all those types of things. But my encouragement to you and my hope for you would be that you would actually go further into realizing, hey, there's a lot of there's a lot of research and there's a lot that's been written down that substantiates the truth claims that we find in those gospel accounts. So that'd be my encouragement to you. Now, before we get out of here, because I know you got some important dental work that your your lovely daughter needs to do, I got some rapid fire MMA questions for you. So these are more like just quick, just quick overall thoughts, okay? okay. So what is the number one fight that you want to have back? So if you go back in your entire career, even if it's a win, but if it's a win that you wanted to get in a more fancier way, if there's one fight that you could go back and redo, which one would it be? Uh, well, either one of them, but probably the two fights that I lost to Vitor. Okay. Why, why are the ones to Vitor? Well, I think just mostly because of, uh, the reputation that he had and, and he would only fight in Brazil for some reason. Mm, For some reason. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I also think that, you know, I would have liked to have had a little bit more time from the referee to kind of recover. He he definitely knocked me silly a couple of times in, in both those second fights. He's dangerous at the beginning of fights and, and uh, it would have been, yeah, that, that's one that I would like to do again, either one of them. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, just real quick, you fought a lot of dudes in pride and in the UFC that were like their blood type was Tropicana. They were so juicy. And like in your book, you just kind of like all shucksy about it. But for me, I'm like, I hate that because like, as you talk about, you don't play fighting. Like you're not, you're not playing. This isn't baseball. This isn't, you know, football. Like you're trying to kill the other person in a simulated manner. So how do you like reckon that? Cause you lost to dudes that were juiced out of their minds when they fought you. Like, how do you like, how are you okay with that? You know, I, I think, 
just being a competitor my whole life, you hear about guys doing this, you think guys are doing that. And, you know, regardless, if they get caught, they get caught. If they Mm -hmm. don't, I guess good for them. For me, it's not something that I would feel good about doing something illegal. Uh, You know, I've always just grown up with my dad and Bob really just forcing, not forcing, but just instilling kind of a good sportsmanship mindset. So I, I wouldn't want to do that. And and I was one of the first guys to, to kind of take advantage of the TRT exemption that, that mm. the athletic commission gave. But I, I, when I first got told that I needed, needed it, I'm like, well, I don't want to do steroids. You know, I'm not doing that. And they're like, yep. no, it's not that. It's it's just your hormones aren't being produced enough. And so I talked to the athletic commission about it and, and they're like, yeah, you, you absolutely can. Well, you know, but then everybody started abusing it and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way it went. But yeah, I mean, just having that mindset of, of being that way, I don't even know what your question was now, but I got, I got off track a little bit, but yeah, I, just being a little bit more sportsman was just how I am. No, you, you stayed in the pocket of the question. I mean, it's basically, and there's a reason why they have a category for Vitor's career called TRT Vitor, right? When he went on the tear, like killing everybody, it was because he, again, was juiced to the gills. All right, back to the rapid fire questions. There's a few more left. If you could have a fight against any fighter from any era, any weight class, and you're in your absolute prime. So you can go full fantasy land here. Like you could fight, you know, Musashi or it doesn't matter. If you could fight one fighter from any area, era, their prime versus your prime, who would it be? You know, um, recently, uh, you know, I, I thought it would have been, uh, you know, what's his face? Izzy would have been a fun fight yep. for me to basically stock him down and I, I think I didn't have a good style for him, mm. but you know, it would have been a fun one to do regardless. Yeah. You know, it would have just been a fun fight just to match up guys that are different like that are kind of, kind of excited me a little bit more. Yeah. That's a guy that would have had a hard time dealing with your, uh, with your clinch for sure. Um, yeah. All right. A couple more left. So, if you could only leave one of your fights for humanity, so if the, all of your fights were just a race from everyone's men, memory, men in black style, and you could leave one fight behind to, you know, give the world the message, this was Dan Henderson, right? What's the one fight you would leave for humanity? <laughs> well, I mean, I told you which ones I felt like a big accomplishment of, but yeah. I would I would have to say uh, Biz being on that one. That was my hope because Dan, I'm going to send you the episode artwork after this. I was going to wait, but literally you flying with Michael Bisbing laying down, ready to accept that second punch while he's already out. That is the artwork for this episode. And if I could get that painted, like as a mural in my house, it literally makes me smile every time I think about that knockout. So I'm so glad. And that's uh, that you said that. So I think that's a great place to wrap it up. I really appreciate all your time and all this, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I've been enjoying uh, retirement a little bit. I have been working on, uh, I'm putting in a brewery distillery restaurant in the building that my gym is in. So it'll be kind of a, an interesting, uh, and pretty unique spot. 
and, and I live in a town where there's a bunch of wineries and some breweries already. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of horse ranches. So I love where I live, but yeah, I've been working on that. So I, I'm going to probably start getting, uh, getting pretty good at learning how to brew and, and distill alcohol. Well, very good. Well, Hey, that may give me an excuse to come out to California. Cause I don't find a whole lot of opportunities cause you live in one of the, one of the fine areas of California, not the crazy areas. So that's good for you and uh, good for your family. But Hendo, thank you so much for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Hendo. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the main link I've got for you today is a link to where you can go and buy your copy of Hendo, the American Athlete. It really was a fantastic read. If you're a fan of MMA in general, it's a great book. But specifically, if you're a Dan Henderson fan, it's a must-have. It's a must-read. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>